Welcome to Graduating Grief, a podcast designed to help you step back into living your life with joy after loss. If you're ready to move from surviving to thriving, you've come to the right place. Here's your host and inspirationista, Sherry Dunleavy. Today, we're going to take uh, a little detour off of the graduating grief uh, path, and we're going to be talking about healthcare workers who deal with death and dying on a regular basis, and we that maybe feel like they're equipped with grief and seeing it because it's part of their profession, but then when it hits them personally, they don't feel as equipped as people think they should be. And they wonder what's wrong with that. I'm so delighted to talk with our guest today, Helen Bauer. Helen uh, is a a hospice nurse. She has a wonderful uh, podcast called The Heart of Hospice. And she has so graciously um, agreed to talk to me about this. So Helen, thank you very much for joining me today. Oh, thank you, Sherry. It's great to talk with you. So we have a lot of things actually to talk about, but I do want to talk about this professional caregiving. You know, that's that's what you do as a nurse, and especially in hospice, you're caring for the dying. And so grief and death and dying, it's a part of your everyday. And so, of course, you should be equipped to handle this if it happens personally, right? Sure, sure. <laughs> We're supposed to be the experts. Yes, but but truly, it's different. It's different, isn't it? Oh, yes, it absolutely is. Um, we, uh, it's always do as I say, not as I do. Mm-hmm. It's typical of most nurses, and I think a lot of uh, hospice professionals, healthcare professionals in general, we, we have the book learning but it's really difficult to apply that kind of insight to your own life when you have a grief event in your own life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really difficult you to have like, that self-awareness. Yeah, is it because you feel kind of like that disconnect or at arm's length with it, even though it's part of what your day-to-day is, you're removed from their emotion, emotional attachment? I would say yes. You know, you don't have that kind of ownership, that kind of engagement in the emotion of it because it's not truly our loss. It's not truly my loss when I'm with a patient or a family. Yes, we do have compassion fatigue. We do have secondary grief. Um, We have empathy. You know, every good healthcare professional should have that kind of attachment to the suffering of someone that's in their care. But we do have to distance ourselves. There's some compartmentalizing. Yeah, you distance yourself so that you can maintain a professional boundary. I mean, if if I were a patient, I wouldn't want a nurse who would fall apart. Um, That's not their role. You know, they might as well Mm -hmm. see the family. You know, that's that's not what I need them to do. Right. We do we do detach ourselves somewhat. Um, It's it's how we stay effective in our job roles. Right. And that's not a bad thing at all. No, no, it's not to say that we're uncaring. It's not to say that we don't have compassion. Not at all. Um, you just sort of learn to distance so that you can function. And we do grieve over our patients' losses and their suffering. We just manage to hold off on that grieving until we can get to a place where it's appropriate to express those emotions. 
But when it comes to then the, the personal loss in life, I think that sometimes we try to, and I say this as a former news professional, um, I didn't work with it daily, but there were instances of the day's news being so horrific that you would compartmentalize, right? And so, um, and when my son died, th that broke, that capacity to compartmentalize broke for me. So I was unable to do that anymore. And so then it was just like all of the world's tragedies came into my life. But um, I think that sometimes we try to employ the same compartmentalization uh, to our own lives and it doesn't quite work that way. <laughs> and we wonder why it's not working and why we can't handle this better. Right, it's a little bit of a coping mechanism, I guess. Um, but I would say that you could take it to an unhealthy level. Mm -hmm. You completely detach yourself from the fact, um, the death event of, of your child or your parent or a sibling, um, it's, you're not actually coping. It's an unhealthy mechanism for disconnection. Mm -hmm. yeah, you don't engage with those emotions because it's too painful. It's too overwhelming. Have you ever had an instance where you were called to you know, serve others in that capacity as a nurse? in hospice while dealing with your own personal grief? I have, I have, there have been parallels when you are with a patient and a family and looking at an older person and realizing this is exactly like my grandmother. This older woman living alone was independent, was vibrant. Um, so like my grandmother, or a diagnosis that's very close to a friend's diagnosis that had died. And you draw these parallels to the people and the relationships that are important to you. Mm -hmm. um, I remember going to see a patient, an older gentleman whose daughter was taking care of him. And she was my age at the time. Um, I was in my 40s at the time. And they had had a very rocky relationship but she had come to take care of him and moved in with him when he began to actively die. And um, I remember drawing parallels, you know, my own relationship with my own father and the dysfunction, you know, sometimes my father and I don't get along, communication is poor. And I was thinking, wow, is, you know, this is what this will look like. Um, and it's hard enough to take on people's circumstances and grief for your own. Mm -hmm. I think it can be debilitating to take on too much of it. But yeah, I, I think there are a lot of times we draw parallels. One of the most significant events I remember in my nursing career in hospice was caring for a patient who was only a few years older than I am. Oh. So that was, that was a huge, weird break for me you know, aging into my 40s and all of a sudden I'm caring for terminally ill cancer patients that are in the same phase of life that have children right. the same age as mine and drawing those parallels. And I found that very intense, very difficult to deal with. I would imagine so. Um, have you ever experienced in, in, in your role uh, with hospice of caretakers you know, nurses, uh, uh, other people in the facility that are trying to care for others while at the same time 
they're grieving a loss. Um, and how, you know, what did you learn from that and how did they handle that? I, ca I can't imagine that, you know, your profession by day is to help these people, but you're carrying this heaviness and this grief and sorrow with you. I, I think it does affect how we respond. I, I think when we've had a personal loss, when we've had a grief event and we are carrying that, I think it amplifies the emotional response we have to our patients and our families, to, to the death and the suffering and the, the grief that the families have. Um, and I have seen healthcare providers, nurses, chaplains, and social workers that are actually providing care for their own loved ones as they are dying. I've had team members that had family members inside the inpatient unit so while they were not providing hands-on care during a shift, they were working on another unit. And meanwhile, their loved one is dying in another hallway. Mm. And it is very difficult to split, to split that. But I think, I think what it does for us is it, it eliminates some of those personal professional boundaries mm -hmm. and amplifies the secondary grief that we feel for our patients and our families when we're holding an, our own grief feelings at the same time. I think so it, is it, is it, oh, yeah. Is it okay, do you think, to let other families who are grieving know that you are too? I mean, some point, I don't think that like you want to put that on them, but at the other point is, mm -hmm. is that I truly do understand what you're feeling because I'm feeling it too. And sometimes at, when I know that when we lost our son just to know that someone could hone in on exactly how we felt just to make even that eye contact of, I'm not the only one in this that's going through this. Someone mm -hmm. understands. Right. It feels like there's a hand that you can hold. Yes. Yes. I, I would say, <laughs> you know, the professional boundary. As a nurse, we always think about that. I think there's a boundary there. Um, I think it's healthy and provides a really good connection um, for you to say, I have experienced this same diagnosis or I had a very similar loss. Yes, I think a lot of times we use the phrase, I understand way more than we should way more than we should, because the fact of the matter is, I may understand that you are grieving from the loss of your son, but I can't understand what that loss is like because I truly haven't been through it. Right. Just, we, we wanna feel helpful. We want to show that we can walk alongside you and we can align ourselves. So we say, I, I understand what you're going through. When maybe the better response is, I know you're grieving, I'm here to do this with you. Let me know what you need. You know, I'm here to help you. I, 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 um, I think there's, again, that balance of maintaining your relationship as a healthcare provider or a care provider with that family. They need to trust you mm -hmm. that you will maintain your relationship in an appropriate way. Because again, if you become one of the grieving family, you've negated that care relationship. You've right. negated your role. Yeah, so it's so difficult. It's it's so so challenging uh, 
what you all do. How do you keep, how do you keep your spirits up? How do you keep when, when this is what you do day in and day out, you, you help support the dying and those who love them. I think it comes down to self-awareness and self-care. I know, you know, in this age of the pandemic, the word, the term self-care has been so overused. It's not manicures and pedicures. It's not your big vacation or a massage. It's what you do on a day-to-day basis to cope with the event that just happened, the phone call you're getting ready to make. It's a small moment of breathing. It's a moment of reflection where you're quiet or your phone, you're not looking at your phone. Um, but I, I think also the self-awareness that you have gone beyond the point of being able to cope in a healthy way and that your practice is not effective, that you've become overly involved or extremely um, detached from your patients. You know, where you get to an extreme, overly emotive, tears when you're trying to function as a professional. Um, but I think self-care has got to be the key to it. It has to be the key. Is, so is there anything that's available to um, hospice care workers and those caring for the dying caregivers um, that, that helps them with the, the process of, of self-care and processing what, what goes on. Are there, uh, I don't know, is there therapy or support groups or, um, you know, workshops? Sure, absolutely. There are a ton of different resources. Um, I would say um, as far as having somebody to talk to, you know, if you want to talk to a counselor or even a coworker, because again, it's really great to connect with somebody who can say, I understand with truth behind it, you know, because they've done the work that you're doing. I think having someone to talk to who sees the same kind of things that you see mm-hmm. and the impact that it has on you, your family may not necessarily appreciate that kind of work. Your spouse may not understand it, but yes, having someone to talk to, um, There are a lot of different uh, mindfulness and reflective resources that are out there. Um, You know, Barbara Carnes, who's one of the the industry leaders in death and dying and hospice care. She has some great resources for self-care for hospice professionals, end of life professionals about how to take care of themselves. Um, Some great websites that have mindfulness techniques and a lot of Buddhist um, practices are really great for that kind of self-care. I think self-care is so individualized. Mm-hmm. You have to find what really works for you and speaks to you and keeps you healthy. I think that it can be too. This is a big thing. A connection to nature too, I would think that could be a, a great model of self-care is just con- connecting to something, uh, connecting to joy in some Exactly. Way. Connecting to meaning. A lot of people find meaning in volunteering and not hospice volunteering, but volunteering outside the industry so that it's um, an activity that's not connected, Mm -hmm. the death and dying, you know, with the industry that we work in. But yes, hiking outside, 
Um, my very first hospice director taught me that when I was a brand new hospice nurse, she said, find the water. She said, whether it's a beak, uh, a beach or the ocean, you know, a lake, she said, find the water and stay near it, swim, wade in it, put your feet in it, you know, um, just listen to it. She said that kind of thing is very nurturing when it comes to self-care. She was a smart lady. Um, I, I believe that. I think that even you can have, you know, one of those little fountains in your house somewhere just to hear the trickle of water that is, that is helpful. Um, water is, is something that I'm guided toward um, that, you know, just pulls me that I think that that's part of the, of the self-care for me as a connection to water in some way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I wanted to talk about um, something that you shared prior to us talking about, and that was um, a time in your life where you were dealing with um, being a medical power of attorney, working and, and then being called into caregiving for, you know, then a family member. And it was just like this, this juggling act that, that just felt, um, I would say to me, it would feel like it was next to impossible. Like, how could you, if, like, I don't even know how you did what you did. Could you go into that and share with that journey with us a little bit? Sure, sure. Um, I very unexpectedly became medical power of attorney and durable power of attorney for a family friend of ours. And it was unexpected because she and I hadn't had any conversations about what she would want uh, her healthcare to look like if she became critically ill. And so I took on her healthcare decisions, um, managing her finances, her household. And I wasn't the only one. I had help from my mother-in-law, who was a dear friend of hers. Um, but I was traveling for work. And so it was quite a handful. And one, unfortunately, one of the things that happened to me was I got cranky, very short-tempered, because I didn't have time to spend a lot of time deliberating over these decisions. You know, her apartment um, she wasn't going to be able to go home and live again. We had to find a place for her to live and her apartment had to be cleaned out and closed down. You know, so I was at, there at six o'clock in the morning. I was sleep deprived and, and worried and sad all at the same time. Um, so I really tried to keep myself focused, not so much on the emotions, but getting the business part of it done, which only served me for a certain length of time. Mm -hmm. You know, um, and then when she died, I allowed myself to grieve and I found a lot of comfort in planning her funeral. I wanted to make it very personalized. We really talked about her and what she loved and what she liked to do. And for me, that was, um, I guess, an outlet for my grieving. That was very helpful for me. But it was, it was overwhelming to be a care professional and keep a professional face at work. And then at lunch, talk to the hospice nurse because my friend had an infection and we needed to do something about that. You know, to, to go back and forth between the personal caregiver and the professional caregiving role is exhausting. I, it was exhausting for me. Super cranky. <laughs> so what advice now looking that you've lived through that? Like what advice would you have for other people that might be going through something similar 
I'll start with that. Well, when people tell you it takes a village, believe them and let them be the village with you, right? Uh, ah, yes. Yeah, because I was the expert, I knew how to do it all. So I didn't have time for other people to tell me what the other options were. I was just going to plow through and make the decision. But if you let people help where their gifts are and where their willingness is, it really relieves a lot of the burden. It really does. That's that's great advice. So when people offer their gifts, take them up on it. So that's a great that's one. Right. That's right. It's actually an opportunity for you to give as well as get because people want to help if they care about you and they care about the person that you're, you're caring for, someone who's seriously ill, they want to be able to chip in. They want to be able to do something. And if you deprive them of that, that's something you take away from them. But if you let them help, according to- feel good about it too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I love that. I, I absolutely love that. Now, on the other hand, let's let's talk about this. What do you wish- could have been different from a work perspective. Do you think that that you could have had an open conversation about what was going on and that things could have been been different? I do wish that. At the time I was working as a consultant. So in my business travel, everybody that I was seeing was a client. Mm -hmm. Of course, I didn't feel comfortable discussing my personal issues. You know, I'm overwhelmed. I haven't had enough sleep because I didn't want to undermine their confidence in the job I was doing for them. Um, so I wish that I had had um, a work family that I was close to, that I could have leaned on and said, you know, this is really hard for me to stay focused because I find myself trying to manage these other things mentally, you know, my personal things in my head. When I really need to focus on work. Um, I think having a work family would have would have been really helpful at that point for me. Yeah, a work family can offer you so much and can sometimes, you know, pitch in just because they love you, you know, and they care about sure. you, right? Sure. And if possible, take some of the workload if that's a if that's yes. a, yeah. Yeah. Like, you know what? Um, we can handle this until you get here. Right. Mm -hmm. Take these calls for the day or let me do these audits so that it frees you, you know, for a few hours to take care of things if you need to. Yeah, I think that's important to recognize that your work family would really be part of your village. Yeah. Yeah. yeah make that a part of your make that a part of your village and be there. You know, that's I just I just think sometimes if we would just see this, uh, we're we're. Even I think maybe even the hospice industry, uh, the healthcare industry, we still don't get the, we're still death averse. We're still grieving averse. We still just wanna hmm, get by it as fast as we, scurry by it as fast as we can, get back to normal as quickly as we can. Sure, sure. And, and some of that you have to understand that it's the nature you know i understand that it's the nature of the business because when my time with one patient is finished there is another patient that's looking for me and for what they need from me i get that mm -hmm. we go the, the nature of the business is we go we move from patient to patient to patient that makes sense but if we don't know how to pause 
and be self-aware. I think it goes back to the self-awareness. I can look back on what happened to me three years ago and realize, oh, this is what I should have done differently. This is what I needed. And I, I should have equipped myself at that time. But I don't want to have to look back three years. I'd like to have that self-awareness and say, okay, this is what's happening now. So to manage at work, this is what I need. And to manage as a personal caregiver and to move through my grief, this is what I would need now. You know, to have that right. awareness instead of the hindsight, that would be right. nice. But I think that once you have that current awareness, the more we talk about it, we can give that gift to others. That's what I'm hoping like this podcast is, your podcast is. We have the self-awareness now of we're not afraid to talk about this. I mean, I kind of equate it like if you look back, we're just now talking about menopause. We're just now talking about these subjects that no one ever talked about before because they were uncomfortable. You didn't know. There was mystery surrounding. But yet so many people had this in common. It's like an elephant in the room that no one wants to recognize, address, or talk about. But it's right. there, staring at all of us. Right. What's, what's a bigger elephant than death? Mm-hmm. It's the ultimate big elephant in the room, but nobody wants to talk about that. No. No. So I want to thank you for talking about it with me. And thank you for your role in this. Thank you for your wonderful podcast, what you do, the work that you do and everyone in hospice. I mean, it's, it's absolutely so important. And um, if I can help, you know, share the message and the mission of what you're doing, I I'm certainly honored to do that. Well, thank you. It's an honor to work in the niche that I do. It's an honor. I learn from everybody that I meet everybody I get to collaborate with like you. Um, and I'm, I'm grateful to be a part of it. Thank you for listening to the Graduating Grief Podcast. For more information on the Graduating Grief community, workshops, and retreats, go to www.sherrydunlevy.com. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, rate, review, and share.